If you are struggling to heal anxiety, then this episode could be the answer as to why it's not happening for you. I have with me Russell Kennedy, aka the Anxiety MD and author of the fantastic book Anxiety RX, who, through his own battle with anxiety, came to some startling conclusions as to why traditional approaches have got anxiety treatment all wrong and what you can begin to do about it. Welcome to the Mindset Change Podcast, and I'm Paul Shepard, your host. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to help it grow, and more importantly, so you won't miss another episode. I just want to say welcome to Russell Kennedy. Hey, thanks. I just want to say congratulations on an incredible book. Um, I listened to you uh, instead of actually reading it, and your humor came across and I think it really does add an impact to how you deliver the information Um, and as finally I can uh, recommend a book to my clients Um, I wanted to ask you a quick question before we began sure Um, anxiety seems to be on the increase more people are trying to more people are trying to seek help but they're struggling with what is available so what is it you Mm -hmm. think is going wrong I think they're really looking to try and fix a feeling problem with a thinking solution in traditional therapy, right? Mm. So the uh, most of the brain structures that mediate anxiety are subcortical. They're below the level of the cortex. So amygdala, pons, medulla, brainstem, that kind of stuff. And none of those things understand words, understand language. So you're trying to fix a feeling problem with a thinking solution. Now, I'm not saying that changing your thoughts doesn't help. It absolutely does. But changing your thoughts will help you cope, but it really won't help you heal from anxiety. To heal from anxiety, you need to change those subcortical, below the neocortex, um, sort of autonomic nervous system patterns that you've probably had since childhood. And if you don't change those patterns your body will likely feel the same. And because your your mind is a meaning-making, make-sense machine, if your body feels alarmed, your brain will make up stories that are, they're not, you know, puppies, cookies, and, kit, uh, and kittens. They're, they're basically stories of, of being scared, of being afraid. Because your mind has to make sense of this old trauma, uh, this old alarm trauma stuck in your body. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense of it by making worries because that, that makes sense to the brain. I feel bad, so I, it must be because of this bad thing that's happening. And it's really not that at all. It's the old programming in your system that makes your body feel alarmed and your mind is just reacting to it. So I think the reason why most people aren't getting long-lasting relief, to try and answer your question, is that most traditional therapies are trying to change the thoughts. When the thoughts are really a byproduct, they're really the effect, they're kind of like a symptom of anxiety, but they're not actually the underlying cause. So if you if you fix a symptom, you'll feel better, but you're not actually fixing the root cause of the problem. Such a great answer. And it reminds me of when I had an anxiety disorder, panic disorder, I sought help. It was all about what was I thinking about? And I was trying to explain that there wasn't a lot I was worried about at the time. I just felt worried. There was an alarm. I, would, I wasn't using yeah. that term at, at the time. It was just, I just felt really anxious, especially in my stomach. Um, and, but they kept focusing back above, you know, above the neck. 
what are you worried about, trying yeah. to go through my past, which was helpful. Um, but how did you come to this conclusion that uh, the, you know, um, the neck up, the thoughts process wasn't going to be that helpful? Uh, LSD. That's the short okay, so, answer. Um, well, I wasn't expecting that. You know, I've got a degree in neuroscience. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's a big surprise. Um, you know, I, I was trained as a traditional medical doctor for one, and then I, my background before my pre med was in neuroscience, which I've continued on for for many many years. And so I had this very cognitive approach to anxiety, and it wasn't until I, you know, in twenty thirteen, I ruptured my left Achilles tendon. I I was out of medicine then because I was already burned out, and that was kind of the the straw that broke the doctor's back. And I left, and I kind of hit the wall. You know, that was the lowest point in my life. And a friend of mine who uh, is sort of a holistic, um, he's an Ayurvedic doctor, like a doctor of ancient Indian medicine. Mm -hmm. So he took me on this uh, LSD trip. I don't think LSD was part of Ayurvedic medicine, but anyway, he was an, (laughs) he's an expert in plant medicine. So he took me on this trip on LSD because he knew how fractured I was. And uh, on that, I was told, I don't know where this comes from, but that my anxiety, what I was calling my anxiety, was really from this sense of alarm that was sitting in my solar plexus. And it was purple and it was sharp. It was about the size of my fist. It pressed into my back. It pressed up into my heart. This is what I saw on LSD. Mm. And then when I came out of it, like not in, like when I was on LSD, my whole mind was fractured. Nothing really came to me then. But on the way out, you know, coming back into, you know, the real world again, this is what I was shown. And then when I came out of that, it was like, oh, okay, well, what if anxiety in my mind is really just this state of alarm that's locked in my body. Cause I grew up, my dad was schizophrenic and bipolar. So I grew up with a lot of chaos and a lot of trauma. And a lot of that was stuck in this area of my solar plexus. And that's what was feeding the alarm thoughts of my mind. So once I started getting into uh, healing that part of my alarm, and here's one, one further is I believe that that alarm that's in my solar plexus is a representation of my younger self, my younger wounded mm-hmm. self, scared, watching my dad, you know, collapse into mania or depression or whatever. So I can use that sensation of alarm as a conduit to contact that younger, scared child in me and bring them back into the present moment and show them that they aren't this helpless, powerless 12-year-old anymore. You know, we're actually quite powerful now that we're 62 years old and you know, with uh, writing books and all that kind of thing. So I brought, I'm bringing him along. So I think a lot of what we need to do to heal anxiety is to find it in ourselves as that, that sense of alarm and realize that that sense of alarm is our younger wounded self. Now, not everybody, but most people mm. that I, certainly everyone that I see as a, as a client or my anxiety peeps has had some sort of childhood trauma. And we work through that by bringing them into connection with that sense of alarm and seeing that alarm as a, as a gift because it forms a conduit that you can actually use to find that younger self. Because a lot of people try and find their, you know, I, I don't like the term inner child because it tends to sound very woo and, 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 and put people off. But, you know, that younger version of yourself that was scared, powerless, and alone, it's like that's who you have to find and that's how you have to bring back. And one more little quick thing I'll tack on to that hmm. is the amygdala in our brains, kind of the, the fear center, at least it it modulates just about every fear pathway in our brain has no sense of time so when we're in that situation when we're six seven eight ten years old um, the amygdala encodes that trauma and it actually encodes it in our body as well as our mind 
So it has no sense of time. So when we see anything today that's reminiscent of our old trauma, that amygdala will, will mentally time travel us back to that time that we were a helpless six-year-old. So of course you're going to feel alarmed. Of course you're going to feel out of control. Of course you're going to feel like there was no answers because there wasn't any answers back then. I love that. That's beautiful. Long answer, I know. No, no I got it. But it, I, I got the, the whole aspect of the alarm being a representation of your younger yeah. self. And and yes, the inner child thing does put a lot of people off. Um, I call it an out-of-date program. It just needs upgrading. Um, and visualizing the younger sure. self is very, is very handy. Um, when I was, when I had anxiety, it wasn't the, that was the first part of my healing process was focusing on the alarm, but I did it first by changing my lifestyle because it was pretty bad. Mm -hmm. Um, my junk food was out yeah. of control. Um, I think all of these habits were probably based on my childhood trauma. Um, is that something that you began to focus on at some point? Uh, how was your, where was your healing journey uh, starting from besides LSD? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I did uh, uh, a lot of work with Gordon Newfeld over at the Newfeld Institute in Vancouver. So he does a lot of developmental psychology work. He wrote a book mm -hmm. with Gabor Mate called Hold On To Your Kids. And he talks about how the developing brain forms and how anxiety starts in the younger version of ourselves and how it just those thought programs or mindsets that I know you talk about in the in your mm -hmm. in your program um, become a habit and the brain's lazy if you look at the brain like it takes up 20 25 percent of our, our our metabolism is taken by the brain the brain is lazy so it will it will try and cut corners any way it can so if it has a a steady program that it's relied on, even, even though that, that program is actually making you sick or ill, if it's relied on that program, it's going gonna, it's gonna to ride that till the wheels come off, especially if the child in you saw that as helpful. So with me, because I had a lot of chaos in my, in my younger world, um, I created chaos in my, in my adult. And Freud called that the repetition compulsion. Basically, mm. you whatever the situation of your childhood was, you will unconsciously replicate that in your adulthood. So if you, you know, had an abusive uh, alcoholic parent, you may pick an abusive alcoholic partner to marry. Like, I didn't do that, but it's just like there's something mm. in us that replicates our childhood. So chaos was part of my childhood. So I replicated that chaos in adulthood. And yeah, I probably drank too much alcohol when I was younger and that kind of thing. Um, didn't take care of myself. So I think there is that that part of anxiety where Self-care is lacking because I think part of us didn't get the, the care that we needed from our parents. So how are we supposed to carry that on for ourselves if we didn't actually get a template of how to look after yourself? I think that's such a great answer. I, I, I like that your, um, and it is, a, you know, it is talked about quite a lot. We repeat our childhoods uh, and you see people who are totally. just simply not used to looking after themselves and not used to peace and calm and being happy. So they sabotage themselves, they sabotage their futures uh, because they want to go back to what was familiar to them as a child and they, and they repeat that within relationships. I think something that really stood out from your, in your yeah, book. And then they, and then, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Okay, go ahead. No, I was just going yeah. to quickly say that because a lot of people are kind of waiting for a savior. Like if your dad or mm. your, your mother or your dad didn't really look after you, a lot of us 
think that our, our parent is going to show up in the form of a spouse or a partner. So I, I have the saying that says, no one's coming to save you. You know, nobody is coming to save you. Like you're an adult now. No one's coming to save you. You have to do this for yourself. You have to start looking after yourself. And sometimes that really sharpens people up when they really realize, when they really come to the understanding uh, that no one's coming to save them. There is that, I think, that unconscious drive in all of us as children to be looked after. And if we didn't get that, I think we always kind of look for it. And, and, but it's, when we do that, we kind of off, you know, uh, offload the responsibility of looking after ourselves onto this magical other that's going to come along. And I see that with so many of my anxiety patients that they're hoping that a, a, a relationship will come in and save them. And you know, no one's coming to save you. You really have to do this for yourself. Yeah, I, I hear that quite a lot. Uh, I do future, future self-coaching uh, as my mentor mm-hmm. is Ben Hardy. And he, um, and just by doing that, you can hear people talk about how they can't even connect with their future self. Or they yeah. begin to think that there, there's a future version of them that will swoop in and save them at some point. But they're not going to do the work mm, to get okay. there. So, and, and that right. so that's, is yeah, abs- yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, it really does, you know, and that's very, Joe Dispenza talks a lot about that sort of, you know, if you think it and you already mentally rehearse it in your mind, it's much more likely to happen because you're kind of overwriting those old, uh, you know, subconscious, unconscious, subcortical programs. I think, um, I think that, that, I like what you're just saying about the overriding those programs. I think that will speak to a lot of people listening to this is that just the ability to rewire the brain through neuroplasticity to address whatever it is that is out of date is absolutely doable because I think one of the things that anxiety does is it lies <laughs> and we, and we fall yeah. for its tricks. It's sirens call. We, we fall for the myths of anxiety. Is there anything that you think that you fought for, you fell for when it came to anxiety? I fell for the idea that it was never going to get better. For example, is there anything that you fell for? Yeah, I think there was a bit of that with me for sure too. Like, you know, this is always going to be, you know, it's a life sentence, all that kind of thing. A lot of people do feel that way. If you've been, you know, anxious for 20 years, it's hard to believe that you're you're not going to be as you get older, you know? So I, you know, overwriting those programs because the amygdala never forgets. Like the amygdala never forgets anything that's ever hurt you or whatever. It's always encoded in there. But what you can do is you can start creating a program that goes over that old program mm. so that you follow that road instead of the automatic, you know, groove in the snow of, you know, following that same anxious program because worry serves a purpose. Worry keeps us in our heads. As I was saying, you know, the, the alarm that's in our bodies, the alarm stored down there, we don't want to go down there. We don't want to go down into our body. So what worry does is it keeps us in our heads. So we don't have to go down into our body and, and revisit that old pain. And believe me, as a medical doctor and a neuroscientist, when I start telling people that their alarm is stored in their body, I start having a little bit of a seizure because, you know, it doesn't really make sense to me from a a scientific point of view. But we're seeing more and more stuff in neuroscience now showing that the insula, particularly the anterior part of the insular cortex, part of the brain that sort of um, mediates the mind to the body and the body to the mind is really implicated in feelings. And it's really implicated in a a feeling-based representation of our thoughts, of our trauma. So, you know, it's been shown that the anterior insula is involved in just about every emotion that we have. 
So, and people that have damage to the anterior insula lose their uh, ability to feel. So it's really interesting to see what neuroscience is giving us these days. And can we get more into our body and out of our heads? And I think that's the way we overwrite these programs is using our body because I don't know. The evidence for rewriting programs strictly with mental thought is mm. not good from, from yeah. what I've seen. So you really need a feeling-based process. And, and I know you do that in your meditations and that kind of thing. You really need this feeling-based process to open up that hypnagogic state, you know, that kind of state between sleep and wake, you know, that just that, that sweet spot of yeah. being suggestible. And that's where we can start changing those programs. So that's why people that go to therapy for 30 years, they're not a whole lot better because you're not really getting at the underlying cause. You may feel better. You may have a connection with your therapist, which is great, but you're really not changing the underlying uh, root cause of where your anxiety or as a alarm, as I like to call it, sits in your system. Mm. Now, I remember sitting with a group of psychotherapists when I was in training in psychotherapy and uh, I said to them, do any of you do any somatic work with the body? Do any of you teach any lifestyle changes? If anyone's struggling with, you know, alcohol or any other you know, habits which impact the nervous system? And there was silence. No, there was like, no, yeah. it's all about the neck up. It's all about what they come in to say. You know, my wife's driving me crazy. Okay, well, let's find out why your wife is driving you crazy. You know, it's not it. It's not, it's not the fact that, you know, your mother and father basically have the same characteristics of your wife because that Freudian repetition compulsion made you pick this person that's similar to your parents. And she drives you crazy because your parents drove you crazy. It's like, it's, <laughs> it, you know, one of my favorite saying is, is, is when I say to people is like, they'll say, you know, this is what's really bothered me. I had this issue at work. Um, this person came up and disrespected me. And I said, okay, well, just like when. It's just like, you know, good in that feeling, just like when. And then they'll say, oh, it's just like when I was in school and I didn't get picked for the for the, the team. I missed by one person. I didn't get picked for the team. You know, it's like, it's always about something in the past. And people will say, you know, I had this great childhood. And then I'll talk to them about it. And, and, and they'll say, oh yeah, my dad used to beat me, you know, but my childhood was great. I was like, mm. your dad used to beat you and your childhood was great. Because I think what happens when we're younger is when we are experiencing physical, emotional, sexual abuse, whatever, that we deny it within ourselves. We deny its importance. So we start denying that importance when we're four, five, six, 12 years old. So we've been doing it for so long. When we get to be an adult, when someone asks you how your childhood was, because you denied the trauma for so long, you say it's great. But then when I go in and I find out that, you know, so many people come in to me and say, oh, you know, I this horrible chronic anxiety, but my childhood was really good. 99% of those people, I will find a significant trauma that they've just buried that they won't, they don't want to deal with. And that's the reason why they're not getting better because they're not dealing with that underlying trauma. Yeah, I think there's a, I like what you're saying about, you know, about the romanticized version of their childhood. So I say to people, you know, they say to me, oh, um, I don't think I should have anxiety. There's no reason why I should have it. And my answer is, but why yeah. wouldn't you have it with, you know, let's explore that right. a little bit further because your history is quite dark in places. And they'll just say, well, everyone's had that, yeah. haven't they? And they're like, no, they haven't. They really haven't. Yeah. And that could be a big wake up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, something that stood out from your book that I really wanted to, to talk to you about was, so people often say, I'm feeling anxious. 
I, I can feel the anxiety. Yeah. And you say in your book, anxiety isn't a feeling. Yeah. And I loved that. That woke yeah. me up to yeah, have it looking at it. Thinking. Yeah. Yeah. T- yeah. Tell yeah, me more about that. Anxiety is a thinking. And the little, yeah. The little example I, I, I draw about that is like when I was practicing medicine, say I had two 15 year olds in two separate rooms, exam rooms, one's a male, one's a female. And I go in and I say, hey, Jessica, you might be pregnant. Well, Jessica's alarm system will go through the roof because she believes that thought that she's pregnant. Then I go in and say, hey, Jeff, you might be pregnant. And he just laughs like it doesn't change his body system at all. In fact, he may, you know, get a little lighter because he's had a bit of a laugh. So anxiety is purely the way that I look at it, the way I break it down into its essence. It's just anxious thoughts. It's just thoughts of fear, thoughts of, you know, projected doom, impending doom, whatever. And if you don't believe those thoughts, it doesn't affect your body. Now, I always prefer people to use the term alarm because that's really what it is. So when you're out for lunch with a friend or whatever, and you're having a great time and you're making eye contact and that social engagement system is fired up and you're, you know, your eye contact and your tone of voice is up and your, your body language, you're connected, the anxiety drops because we don't, you know, the social engagement system is connected. So we're connected to each other. But when we believe these negative thoughts and it affects our body, we start, you know, this cascade where this alarm in our body aggravates the thoughts of our mind. And then if we think horrible thoughts, of course, the alarm's going to get worse, which of course is going to make the anxiety worse. And on top of that, when the alarm is up and we go into survival physiology, so we start secreting norepinephrine in the brain, we start secreting cortisol in, in the system from the adrenals. What happens is that we go into survival physiology and that survival physiology actually shuts off the prefrontal cortex. So not only do we make up more worries when we're alarmed, but we paralyze the part of our brain that would say, this worry doesn't make a lot of sense. You don't have to believe this worry, right? Mm. So we get double whammied. So when we get alarmed, we start preferentially looking for threats because that's in our evolution. When we get alarmed, we, we look around like, what's threatening me? And if there isn't anything threatened, what we will do is we'll make up a worry, as I was saying before, because that makes sense of the alarm. And then we believe the alarm, which of course starts this whole cascade. So I believe to heal, we have to realize that anxiety is anxious thoughts and alarm is what hurts. Alarm is Mm. what's causing the pain, the alarm in your system, alarm in your body. That's what's painful. The thoughts themselves aren't painful, but it's hard for people to understand that because what happens is as human beings, we communicate with each other in language. Like we think with words. So we think that words are the be all and end all, but they're not. It's actually the feeling in the body. So you have to change the feeling. It's much more effective to change the feeling in the body to change the mind than it is to change the mind to try and alter the feeling in the body. So it's really about, I get people to say, I'm feeling alarmed because that's what they're, that's what's happening. They're feeling alarmed. It's not they're feeling anxious. Anxiety has, as a word, has very little consciousness to it. The only thing I really like about the word anxiety, and this is from Michael Brown's book, the uh, the pro the presence process. It's like if you rearrange the letters in anxiety, you get any exit, which I love. <laughs> you know, yeah. I read his book years ago, and I just I just love that anxiety. If you rearrange the the, the letters, you get any exit. I love what you're saying. And I think something that stood out for me about the alarm in the body was I used to have that this list of all the things I thought I had to work on mentally, because that was the sort of thoughts that were popping into my mind. 
what was a shock was as soon as my body began to calm down from being alarmed, the things I thought I'd have to deal with didn't seem to be a problem anymore. It was like reality began to yeah. shift quite quickly. Yeah, because you got your prefrontal cortex back. You know, once once that cortisol drops, once the epinephrine drops, and you regain the the function of your thinking brain, your, your neocortex, your thinking brain, you go, why was I so worried about that? Like, that made no sense at all. But at the time, because that part of you that would say, hey, this makes no sense at all, was paralyzed by the survival chemicals in your body. So it's an unfortunate part of the human experience is that that we paralyze the very part of our brain that we need the most at the time we need it the most. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And a lot of people tend to move down the medication route because that seems to be yeah. you know, on offer and it's a quick and easy fix. What are your thoughts? Well, it does, it does tend to work. I mean, I'm not against psych meds. I think psych meds can be life-saving for a lot of people. And it depends too how much trauma you've had. Like there's some people that have had such horrendous trauma that, you know, maybe medication's an option for them. Um, and I think people have different options for healing. I've seen people with horrendous traumas actually heal from them. And I've seen people with what you would call sort of maybe low-grade, little T, whatever you want to call them, traumas, never really be able to escape it. So you really don't know until you start um, connecting with yourself. You really don't know your potential for healing until you connect with yourself. I'd like to say that everybody can heal and, and that kind of thing. I don't know if that's actually true, but I think that it's a combination of how much you know intestinal fortitude do you have to go into your old traumas and work on them, uh, and and how much ability uh, you know neuroplasticity do you have? I mean, we have different chemicals in our brain, brain derived neural growth factors. There's a bunch of stuff in there that helps with neuroplasticity that some people have more, excuse me, more of than others. So. Our healing isn't this sort of one-size-fits-all kind of thing. It's what happened to you, how badly did it affect you, how sensitive were you born? Because everybody everybody I deal with with anxiety was born a sensitive person, every single one. There isn't one person with chronic anxiety who wasn't born a sensitive person. So it is one of those things that like everybody's healing path is different. And I think it's really you know, creating that belief and, and, and knowing the ultimate cause, you know, if you're, it doesn't matter how much brain derived neural growth factor you have, if you still believe that your anxiety is thought based, you're not going to heal, you know, until you bring in that picture, until you bring in that somatic piece. And again, I'm not against somatic or, you know, cognitive therapy at all. I think it's very, very helpful. But what I am against is just thinking that cognitive therapy alone is going to heal you. It'll help you cope, but it's certainly not going to heal you. Yeah, I, I, going on to cognitive therapy, I often wonder how that will work because clients tell me it's not working for them in cases. And I'm like, well, the, the prefrontal cortex is disengaged. It's, it's not really going to work that well for you to do that process because your, your limbic system, your emotional brain is now taking over. So, But yet it's often touted as in this is what you should do in a panic attack situation or if you've got a phobia, right. uh, which can leave people feeling a bit bewildered because they want to be rational. They know they shouldn't really have a problem, yeah. but they're feeling that alarm. Yeah. I remember getting a note from uh, a psychiatrist saying the patient has failed CBT therapy. Oh. And it's like, can I swear on this thing? Yeah, of course you can. Can I swear yeah. on your podcast? Yeah, yeah, you can. Like, what the fuck? 
The patient has failed. The patient has failed. Mm. Like talk about a medical profession that, that villainizes people that don't get better because their own therapies aren't working. Right. And I'm a medical doctor. So I, I, I have a right to yeah, kind yeah. of go in there and talk about medical doctors. So it's just like the, the patient didn't fail therapy. The therapy failed the patient, you know? So it's like the thing about CBT is if I, if I send you to a university and you do the the, ther- the CBT quiz when you start, your anxiety quiz, and you score like, say, 80. And then at the end of the 12-week CBT thing, uh, you score 42. They'll go, hey, look at this. This is amazing. Look at what, what, a, what a drop. And people will say, I feel better. But then a year later, they're kind of back to the same place that they were. And on top of that, they go, I just spent $2,500 on this CBT program. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm worse than I was before I started, or I'm not any better. And then they blame it on themselves. And of course, self-blame is not going to help you heal for sure. But the thing about CBT is you can, you can quantify it and you can teach it. Mm. And that's why universities get funded. That's why these things, there's a move in the States now to deregulate or, or stop giving continuing education credits for somatic therapy, because I think it just threatens them so much. Because I think it just threatens it because it works. You know, like if you've been a psychiatrist for 25 years trying to deal with anxiety and then this, these other people go to this somatic therapist or whatever and they're much better than they've been in the 25 years of therapy that you've had with the psychiatrist, the psychiatrists are going to get pretty threatened by that. So they don't really want – and then, of course, they'll call it witchcraft, hocus-pocus. Mm-hmm. It's not evidence-based, all this kind of stuff. And I'll say, what is science? What is science really done for healing? Not coping. Science has done, you know, physiological side. There's a lot of things that science has done for helping us cope with anxiety. But what has it done to really help us heal from it? What has it done? You know, the advances in neuroscience in the last 20 years have been amazing. But very few of those advances have actually lend themselves to the clinical setting where the, the therapist and the patient are together. So, and even Joseph Ledoux, who's one of the, the heavyweights uh, in, you know, the anatomy of anxiety, uh, admits that as well. That, you know, we've made tremendous strides in neuroscience, but it doesn't really translate into benefits for patients directly. So, this, this thing kind of gets me upset a little bit because this whole lean on evidence-based science, it's like science doesn't heal you, Right. The, you get healed by your relationship with your, your therapist, your expanding relationship in your, in your home life with your partner, with your kids. That's what starts to heal you because as you get more connected to other people, you become more connected to yourself. And it's mm. the connection with yourself that heals you from anxiety because anxiety ultimately is a split from you, your adult self, and your child self and your mind and your body. There's a split there. And until you, until you pull that split back together – you're not going to heal from anxiety. And so far, I haven't seen science really help us, you know, connect with that younger version of ourselves. So, and by definition, you know, I, I'll go on a rant here. I will, I'll finish this off pretty soon. No, but, please do. but basically, you know, by definition, science is reductionistic. You want to re- reduce it down to its component parts. But healing doesn't have, as far as we know now, it doesn't have a component part to it that we can point to and go, this is what heals. This is what heals. And ironically, what heals may be the opposite of science. It may be this more uh, ephemeral, ethereal kind of sense of uh, consciousness that science hasn't been able to touch. 
we can explain it on some level, but it's still a man-made explanation. So, you know, healing comes from a consciousness perspective and science has very little to do with that. It can help. It can help you cope and helping you yeah. cope maybe puts you in the realm of healing, but it's not going to heal you. I absolutely 100% agree with you. Uh, a big part of my work is because of my own experiences is soothing the alarm in the body. I don't use the word alarm, but I use the word false alarm quite a lot because that's yeah. what uh, some of my clients uh, yeah. relate to. But soothing the false alarm in the body um, on a in a variety of ways holistically because obviously lifestyle, often sometimes trauma or just not knowing what to do as soon as our heart raises, their interpretation of it, they might just need a reframe. Um, but that in itself just changes very quickly. As you said earlier, it gives them their prefrontal cortex back. So they begin to think much more clearly. Mm -hmm. But that the healing isn't often linear either. It sometimes no, just... It, I don't think it's ever linear. No, it, it just Yeah, because here's thing. the thing about that is, yeah, a lot of people with anxiety don't feel safe feeling safe because that was their childhood. Mm -hmm. Like they, they will feel when they felt safe, then their father would go on another drinking binge or the, you know the the house would collapse in a chaos from something else so so there was always a, the other shoe was always going to drop so there's this hypervigilance so there is this this um insecurity with the feeling of safety so as i start to help people feel safer their anxiety or alarm actually gets worse because it brings them back to this mm. childhood place that they said hey it's not safe for me to feel safe right now because i know you know, shit's going to go down in the hood again because it's, I'm swearing a lot today, but it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. passionate about this. <laughs> so it's like, so you get this and chapter 62 in my book is when it's not safe to feel safe. And that's the biggest obstacle I see in people healing from anxiety is because when they start healing, they get more anxious because they're afraid to feel safe. I'm trying to help you feel safe, but you're afraid of this place that I'm trying to help you feel. Mm. So you're going to go back to anxiety because that's what you know, like human beings will go back to the known and stay in their suffering rather than take a chance that this is, you know, and stay and stay patient with it and move through it. Yeah, yeah. So that's why it's so hard to heal people with anxiety exact precisely because it's not linear precisely because you get worse before you get better. And typically people don't come to see a therapist until it's really, really, really bad. So, yeah, yeah. you know, it, it's this real catch 22 in there is that, you know, and I tell people, you know, you're probably going to feel a little worse. But what I'll tell you is know that you're on the right track. You're finally on the right track treating this alarm. And the first place that we kind of disagree a little bit, Paul, is it's not false alarm at all. It's a real okay. alarm. Oh, because I call it a false alarm, especially when there's no danger in front of No, them. I know what you mean, though. Yeah, I know what yeah. you mean. I yeah. agree. I agree with you. But the alarm, and that's true. That's absolutely true. Mm. But the alarm is real. The alarm that's in their system is real. Mm. And that's, that's really the genesis. That's the engine of their mind-based anxiety is this alarm that's stuck, it, that's stuck in their system. Probably encoded through the anterior insula, the posterior cingulate cortex. There's a bunch of places in the brain that we're starting to see refer to the body specifically. And I think healing uh, of anxiety is really in the next 10 years is going to go towards psychedelics. And it's going to go really into somatic therapy because... One thing that anxiety does is it separates the mind from the body. So if your mind and body are separate, of course you're going to feel alarmed. Of course you're going to feel off-center. So to heal that, we need to bring your, uh, your, your mind and your body back together. And 
the thing about bringing your body back together is starting to feel all your sensations, really getting, you know, focused on hot and cold. I think this, the Wim Hof stuff, I think the, the, mm -hmm. the, the ice bath that activates, you know, um, subcortical, subthalamic uh, uh, pathways in our spinal cord that bring us into our body. And, and we're so afraid in anxiety of going into our body because that's where the pain is. Heat, sauna, you know, bringing yourself into that, bringing yourself into taste. This is all mindfulness stuff. Like all this stuff has been sort of developed peripherally, but it all makes perfect sense to me because it all runs through this same sort of pathway that gets you connected with your body. That's really where the healing is because that's where all the subcortical pathways that house your anxiety and created your anxiety since you were a child. So we have to use those feeling-based modalities to change that structure in the brain and the body before we can heal. Otherwise, we're just sort of put, you know pushing a rock up a hill trying to think better. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. And I and I am I'm very interested in the psychedelic side of things. Kind of banned here in the UK. I think there may be places yeah. in the states where it's a bit more liberal. Uh, what are your experiences well, of psychedelics? To be. It's starting to be. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's getting easier. It's getting better. You know, I don't recommend them. Yeah, you I, I think that there more is known about it. Can mm -hmm. you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think more is getting known about it. So, so the more we know about it, the better it is. And if you look at the psychedelics, they're really kind of um, ephemeral, ethereal kind of practice. And again, that's kind of the opposite of science in a way. Excuse me. So the more um, we understand about the psychedelics, the more I think we're going to be able to use them in therapy. So I, 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 I here's the thing that I, I get criticized for a lot is they say, oh, you're recommending that we take psychedelics. It's like, no, I'm not actually. People with anxiety, I actually don't recommend they take mm. psychedelics because the thing about anxiety is it makes us always want to have control. And one thing about psychedelics is that it takes away all your sense of control. So microdosing psilocybin may be something that I think would, would be acceptable, but I really don't recommend um, doing psychedelics if you're anxious. I recommend doing 6 to 12 months of somatic therapy. If you're going to do psychedelics, do mm -hmm. 6 to 12 months of somatic therapy first so that you get into your body, you know what it feels like, you've got some sort of resilience, some sort of grounding. Because I'll tell you, those experiences with psychedelics were the most horrifying of my life. Like take my worst panic attack, my, my very worst panic attack where I was convinced I was dying and multiply that by a thousand and you're still not going to get close to it. So right. it's, it's okay. you know, if you're going to do psychedelics, make sure it's, it's supervised, make sure these people know what they're doing, that kind of thing. Now, the flip side of that is the shamans that, that do this in Peru and that kind of stuff. They've been doing it for a long, long time. It's been a lineage that's handed down. But still, I mean, it can do, psychedelics are among the most safe chemicals physiologically, but psychologically, they can really cause a lot of damage. And I see a lot, maybe not a lot, I see people who have done psychedelics who aren't the same after mm. because it, it, it is this incredibly intense experience and it kind of lifts the veil on, you know, what it's like to be a human being, what it's like to be alive. And some people have a really difficult time coming back to earth from that. I know it took me about two years to feel, to right. feel normal again after ayahuasca. So I don't, I think that there's the great thing about psychedelics is I think what it does is it paralyzes the ego, that overprotective ego that won't actually let you go back mm -hmm. into your trauma. And that's what also prevents us from healing too. 
So there is something about that. And there's some studies that so, sort of show that they paralyze the default mode network of the brain, which kind of people think may house the ego, the protective ego. So when mm. you take the psychedelics, your ego is paralyzed. So now it's not stopping you from going back into that time that you were abused or, or into the horrible accident that you had or um, your mother died or whatever. It's preventing you from going back into that, but it's, this allows you to kind of go back into it. It's horrifying sometimes. But it allows you to go back because you got to, in in a way, you've got to feel it to heal it. So if you stay outside of that feeling, um, you can't heal it. You have to really experience it. Mm -hmm. But we have to create a sense of safety with people first. Um, you know, psychedelics are like hitting an ant with a sledgehammer. It's it's a pretty intense experience. So it's something that I I, I tell people not to take lightly. It will become more in the states. It's starting to become. I know I know someone who does it um, uh, in Western Canada. And that kind of thing too. It's still kind of hush hush and that kind of thing, mm. but it will become more mainstream because it works. You know, it, it's infinitely, it's infinitely more powerful than psych meds. It's infinitely more powerful than traditional psychotherapy and all that kind of thing. So it will get a following for sure. It's just, is it going to be done in a safe and responsible manner? And I was, I was looking at. I just going to end on this one thing. I was looking mm. the other day on the in the states because you can get everything in the states but in the states they have um, ketamine lozenges so and they recommend <laughs> oh, that you you know i think it, i think you still have to you have to be prescribed it you have to be prescribed okay. it but it's it's they recommend that you put on headphones with soft music you know you lie on a couch you put your ketamine lozenge in there's nobody else there right so this is really unsafe in a lot of in a lot of ways um but you know i think that's where we're going as a society if there's enough demand for it somebody will try and make money from it. And that's kind of what's happening in the States already. Yeah. I, I keep hearing people I know doing ayahuasca and their experiences of it so far doesn't, it doesn't appeal to me in the slightest. I'm fascinated by it, but yeah. the, the, the description mm -hmm. is quite graphic of what they go through with various okay. buckets and things. So well, you might know what I'm talking to referring to, but I didn't um, throw it, up. Yeah. I did ayahuasca twice. I didn't throw up. But but uh, but many people do. Many people mm. purge. You know. Yeah. Sounds... There's also a therapy called frog venom therapy, where they where they inject frog therapy into your forearm and you vomit for 24 hours, and that's supposed to purge the negative demons and and programs okay. and stuff like that. I you know, this stuff. You know that that's it's it's heavy stuff. Healing. It is. It do you really think that's is. born I think out of a safe way to do it? Yeah, do you think that's born out of um, a born desire of... to get a quick fix, you know, to to try and oh, sort this out very quickly? Um, I don't want to do 12 months of um, somatic therapy. I'm going to, you know, have a right. lick a frog or I'm going to do some ayahuasca and hopefully yep. I'll, I'll be a different person. This quick fix. Sounds like a t-shirt, you know. Don't do 12 <laughs> months of therapy, lick a frog. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, no, I, I think there, I mean, we're definitely in a dopamine-driven state right now human beings as a mm. as, as general you know human organisms like we, we get so much immediate gratification i mean you go on your phone and you can visit 12 exotic locations within a minute you know like these are beautiful places in the world on instagram and you just flick through them mm. it's like wow this is maldives this is amazing right so we've trained our brains to be highly dopamine driven and um the serotonin aspect of it, the mindfulness, the, you know, the contentment, the feeling happy with what you have, it we're, is leaving us and we're getting more and more dopamine driven and it's, yeah, dopamine could be the molecule that, you know, kind of destroys us and 
you know, it's looking kind of that way. Hopefully we can pull it out of the, pull it out of the nosedive, but we'll see what happens. Yeah. I think Anne Lembeck's uh, book, uh, Dopamine Nation is a, a great resource for mm-hmm. anyone who wants yeah. to have a little look at how they're spending their dopamine and maybe to reassess how to yeah. spend it a little bit more wisely. Um, yeah. But the dopamine will tell you not to do it that mm. way too. There's another great book yeah, uh, yeah. called The Molecule of More. That's, uh, that's, yeah, uh, that's another great book on dopamine for sure. Uh, what would you advise uh, for someone who is listening to this, they're maybe struggling with anxiety. What would be the best course of action, the first step that they should take? First step is to buy my book. <laughs> I'd agree. I think it's a, it's a great resource. Get, yeah, yeah, first step is to get my book. No, I, I think I think it is. that Now, the thing about the book is that it can be triggering, right? Like the first two sections, uh, awareness of mind and awareness of body, um, can take you back into places that, you know, weren't comfortable for you as a child. So sometimes what I get people to do is read section three first because it tells you kind of what you do about these things. But it really helps people kind of feel, you know, normal in a way in that they're, you know, I think it was Krishnamurti that said that it's no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. And I think that we're, you know, we're a profoundly sick society. So anxiety is just on the rise because mm. we're not grounded anymore. We're not connected to each other anymore. COVID really, you know, threw that in the toilet for sure. Um, so there is this thing like, how can I be more connected to myself and how can I be more connected to other people? So I think, you know, doing meditations, like your meditations, like doing things that sort of stop that kind of compulsive dopamine drive. I've got to do more. I've got to do more. Mm. Uh, I don't want to be where I am right now. So I want to distract myself, you know, just being able to sit, sit with our pain. You know, I think the thing that prevents us from healing the most is the inability to be willing to be with the pain. Mm -hmm. You know, we're one of the few animals that actually stops ourselves from feeling our own emotional pain by distractions and all this. And it works. Distraction works. So it's that's why Instagram, that's why all these things do so well is because distraction works. It does take you away from your pain, but it's always waiting for you, you Mm -hmm. know. It's always waiting for you at, at the end. So, so healing is, you know, finding the alarm in your body for one, seeing that as, as your younger self and connecting with it. So I tell people, it's like when you get anxious, or I like to say, when you feel alarmed, search your body, like, where is that in your body? Cause most people don't think to even to look for it. So, and I'm creating a sort of a meditation and that kind of stuff right now to find the alarm in your body. And, you know, some people it's in their throat, some people it's in their chest, some people it's in their belly, um, some people it's across their shoulders. Um, it's just finding that alarm and, and seeing it as your younger self and breathing into it and, and being able to connect with it, uh, even though it hurts, you know, even though mm-hmm. it hurts. And if you need therapy, if you need someone like a somatic therapist or a therapist or someone who does internal family systems work or, or whatever um, therapist you trust, if you need someone there to be able to kind of help you through that, absolutely do that because we can't we can't heal alone. You know, mm. we just can't do it. No matter how good a book is, uh, my book is pretty good. Um, it, it can't heal you unless you have unless you have that ability to make those connections because it's making those connections that overrides the anxious feeling in the first place. Because you didn't get that connection as a child, you're going to be suspicious of it as an adult. But you have to just keep, you know, powering through and keeping and, and choosing connection, 
choose connection, choose connection. When your spouse is annoying you or whatever, and you want to get into a little fight, choose connection. And it sounds kind of Pollyanna and that kind of thing, but it's really, it's about connection. You're not going to heal your anxiety unless you're connected to the people around you. And then you're connected to yourself. You're just not going to do it. I've never seen it. No, I absolutely 100% agree with you on that. But I think the ego tricks us into thinking we should do it all alone. And therefore, we get to keep the struggle. Well, it doesn't want it doesn't want to go, it doesn't want us to go back into that old pain. So mm -hmm. the ego will do anything to take to keep us away to detour us. You know, it's like having a like a construction sign. You know, it's like the ego's there. It's like no, nope, take detour, go off this way, <laughs> go to Instagram. Yeah. You know, uh, go go shopping, do something, but don't go into this. And and we need to go into it. And sometimes we need someone else there to help us go into it. And that's how we heal. Yeah, perfect. Um, obviously, I'm going to recommend your book, The Anxiety or Access is out now. Um, uh, there'll be a link in the show notes. Uh, but where can people find you? The Anxiety MD, not the Anxiety Doctor, but the Anxiety MD. It's my Instagram, it's my Twitter. My website is theanxietymd.com. That's usually the best place to if you just search the Anxiety MD, I'm, I'm all over that. Yeah, no, I, I love your um, Instagram. And I was listening to your podcast earlier, such gold. Um, and I'm, I'll put all the details in the show notes. I just want to say thank you so much for a great conversation on anxiety. Uh, Thanks, honestly, Paul. it's been truly brilliant. Yeah, no, it's been great. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for everything you're doing in regards to helping people with anxiety, because this is the approach that I favor. Uh, so I'm glad, uh, actually, as a client that recommended that I contact you. They said, I've oh, read this amazing yeah. book. It's very similar to some of the stuff you talk about. And I was like, who is this person? And, then, yeah. um, and it's led yeah. us to actually having this conversation. So I'm very, very grateful. Thank you.